hey, Jim, look around the room right now. Everyone is here because of you. The moment I heard those words, it changed everything for me. And yet it changed nothing because I truly am what I always felt I was. I'm the connector. That clarity is what brings me to you and what drives this show, the Remote Start Podcast. Here, I connect my lifelong passion for bringing people together with my love of business and branding in hopes that these talks might better connect your community with what your company is all about. So let's figure out your brand. Let's figure out the target audience you want to serve and how we can use these two things to create an incredibly strong community for your business. I'm your host, Jim Doyon. Let's get something started. Remote Start Nation, on today's episode, we're going to be discussing community. We're going to deep dive and talk with one CEO on how he's grown a worldwide network for his organization. We're going to dig into how community relates to managing remotely, traction management methods, grassroots marketing, and even fundraising. I'm Jim Doyon, your host, and today I'm honored to introduce Dr. Wolf Van Law, CEO of Students for Liberty to the Remote Start Nation. Students for Liberty is a nonprofit organization with close to 100 staff members that trains and supports pro-liberty students worldwide. Wolf received his PhD in political economy at King's College London in March 2017. He's lived and studied in the US, Turkey, Spain, Germany, the UK, Sweden, and Argentina. He's been published in multiple books and appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Foreign Policy, Forbes, Huffington Post, Bitcoin Magazine, Coindesk, and C-SPAN. Woo! That is a long intro. Thanks for having me, Jim. <laughs> Wolf, I'm excited to have you. Welcome to Remote Start Nation. You, you've done a lot in your young years, and I'm so thankful to have you. Now, it's really cool what, what you're doing, and I'm glad to be part of the show. Absolutely. Let's get started. Tell us something about you that we wouldn't know if we just met you. Hmm. I guess if you were able to see me as one of the viewers, you would probably not think that you could potentially also find me from time to time in a mosh pit. Nice. I relate to that very, yeah. very much so. Nice. It's all, it's all business, but then, you know, party in the back a little bit. <laughs> I like that. You take care of what you have to take care of, but enjoy yourself at the same time. That's important. Indeed. So tell us about your personal journey. What led you to CEO of SFL? So that was actually a very random journey. Uh, I grew up in a small town in the middle of nowhere. I think your audience has figured that I'm not from Alabama with my accent, right? <laughs> um, it's a town, a thousand people, middle of nowhere. From my perspective, nobody does anything remotely interesting. Nothing wrong with that life, you know? Like, I'm not judging it. It's just, just something for me. But then later in life, I uh, got to learn English. I came to the United States first time in 2009, um, took intensive language classes, traveled along the East Coast, and uh, became like more fluent because my high school education, in addition to me being a sucky student, really didn't translate into me being really good in English. But once, once I learned the language, like a whole different world opened up to me. And then you mentioned all the countries where I lived in, I got a little bit nuts and uh, lived around the world. And part of that was that I discovered the ideas of liberty, the thinkers behind that, explaining like why free society, why free markets, why property rights are a good thing, why that actually helps alleviate poverty. And that was really exciting to me. And, um, and shortly after I learned about Students for Liberty, I became a volunteer for the organization. And I can tell you, Jim, that no internship program, no university program, could have given me these skills that I received from Students for Liberty. 
I got to raise 50,000 euros as a young 20 year old, build a whole training program, interviewed probably the hundreds of young students before I was in my mid twenties, just because the organization trusted me with that. And wow. now I'm, I'm privileged to be the CEO and uh, doing this with thousands of students all around the world. So yeah, it was a, a measure of risk-taking, doing things other people would probably not do and uh, pursue my passion. And so I ended up here and grateful now to live in the United States, married here and continue to build this organization. That's awesome. Tell us more about Students for Liberty and, and what your mission is and, and what you've accomplished so far in the CEO role. Well, thank you. Um, we are 15 years old now at Students for Liberty. And what our mission is to take students interested in these ideas that I've already mentioned, take them, give them skills like leadership skills, organizational skills, and communicational skills, but then not only train them, but then also give them the practical application, the empowerment aspect. So what does that mean? Um, to give you an idea, last year, our students have organized in over 113 countries, 1,915 events with over 250,000 people attending those events. Wow. And so they are learning how to do stuff like you, inviting speakers, right? And then doing logistics for that or giving a presentation for the first time. And that gives them more confidence, more skills, and they have ownership over something. Whereby when they're just in university, they just have to run jump through hoops and have to write their papers. So they're becoming more entrepreneurial, like your audience as part of that. And so that's what the organization is doing in a nutshell. So that we change the campuses today, but then also society in the future. Because if you imagine somebody having these skill sets, having like a larger vision, becoming more confident, then go out and become maybe like you, an entrepreneur or think tank leaders or politicians or journalists or musicians that then continue to spread the ideas of liberty in a different way. And that's really our long-term goal. And I, and you've done a great job at that. I've even seen from your website, like, you know, some of your students have been uh, noted by Forbes and, you know, Forbes, was it 30 under 30? Yeah, we are like six people for an authority on authority list. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's excellent. And and politicians, and I mean, you you are definitely making a difference. I actually also had seen that recently. Um, you had a couple big raises where people had donated some money. One of them I thought was to such a cool cause, but you you've raised one hundred fifty one hundred one point five million. Sorry, to establish Green Liberty, which is a global program where you're promoting free market environmentalism and exploring ideas that are likely to foster greater and more rapid improvements in the environment than top-down mandate. To me, that's huge. That is, I, I think, such an important thing that yeah, I, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that and how that came about and, and kind of your mission with that. Well, thanks for asking. So if people think normally about liberty or libertarian or classical liberals, they think like, oh, there's just these individuals that just want to like protect their Mariana plants with guns and so forth. And there might, there might be some truth to that. Uh, however, we also care about uh, the poor and the environment. And we right now know that the most important policy for Gen Zs is climate change and the environment. Actually, over like, close to one third of every Gen Z person already said that they have done like some sort of activism towards like helping the environment. Now, right now, unfortunately, the discourse is very much limited to like what can like supranational organizations can do, what can government can do? And they're coming up with all of these different ideas, ignoring that the biggest pollutant of the planet is, for instance, the U.S. military, right? They, they're, they're producing the, the most atrocious environmental damage around the world. Not only when they're fighting wars, just getting ready for that. But also government is, is anyone who has ever been to DMV knows that <laughs> government services, processes, they are not necessarily the best. 
So in the climate and environment are very, very complicated. So we need entrepreneurial solutions. We need trial and error. We need different people coming into that and allow for more investments. And we want to create a discourse about this. How can we encourage more of this instead of just looking for answers to the government? I'm not saying that there might be no solution that the government could implement. I'm just saying we should not ignore individuals coming together on a civil society level or entrepreneurial level to find solutions. And that needs to be more encouraged instead of just like with the stick, trying to regulate everything, allowing also more investments and more positive incentives for people to become part of the market and solve issues. I think when you offer that free forum and a platform for people to do that and get behind, I think it it's, has the opportunity to be a lot bigger than if government did step in. Absolutely. And entrepreneurs know what are the conditions of time and place. A bureaucrat sitting here in D.C., does not necessarily know like what needs to happen in Flint, Michigan, as we know, right? We need people on the ground that know what the issues are and then address those things. Of course, they're global issues. If you want to discuss those and there's this, this complicated discussion to be had there. However, often it has something to do with people who are on the ground who are facing rising sea levels or whatever it might be right. and coming up with ingenious ways to helping the local population or the animals or whoever else is suffering from those uh, consequences. Yeah, that's a good point. Thank you for sharing that with us. I'd like to get into the topic of community. And mm -hmm. as you've just mentioned, you have built a, an incredible community that's spanned all over this world. And, you know, I'd like to start with, let's just talk about some of the principles that you've learned about building community and, and what that's led to. Yeah, some of the principles, that's, that's a question. I would say, let me share two or three of them. One would be that one has to be very selective who you're letting in. Right? It's appealing to, to grow community as quickly as possible, but you have to be selective who are the people who are driving it and what kind of people you want to let in. So we are getting every year seven to 10,000 applications to our program, but we are only letting um, one third of them in because quality over quantity is, is the most important thing. Because if the community will be undermined by people like putting your banner as, your, as, as their banner and just marching forward, but they are like really of putting online or in person, then they'll alienate like a huge, huge group of people. You need people who are not only educated about whatever you want to talk about, but also are kind human beings mm. that you want to have a beer with, that you want to have a coffee with, right? So that's, be very selective about that. That would be one principle. Another principle would be give them ownership. You can only grow a community if you are giving other people areas of ownership. If you try to do everything, that's not scalable. And that will not give people a buy-in. People have buy-in if they see that they have an ownership of that. Maybe they are organizing like the local local events, local uh, conversations about whatever it is that you want to talk about. Let's say, I don't know, ways of remote work. Give them ownership about that. Give them, for instance, the power to do the marketing, to create the lists of people that they want to reach out to, uh, or like the, the partnership aspect so that they can collaborate with you, Jim, for instance, and, and you know, work something out there. And then um, attach, and that's another principle, um, attached to the ownership some specific KPIs so that you know how they succeed or how they fail. I think some of these principles will really, really help you grow a community. I love that. Those are great points. Let's go back to the principle of ownership. From As a leader and, and building your team and, and you have people all over the world, how do you, like, at what point do you, do you set up certain, you know, is it marketing collateral? Is it you know, does it have to, does it start with the KPIs? And so they know, I mean, they know from the start, you have freedom to do what you're doing, but this is what has to be included. How does that work? And it's a constant challenge. And I'm not saying that we're doing it perfectly, but we have learned a bunch of different things. And a lot of these things come about organically. 
when I started as a volunteer, we had all of the ownership, right? There was no staff really helping us. There was like somebody else was training us at the beginning and then off we went and we created everything ourselves. So there's always a very difficult tightrope to walk between structure and things that you need to give those folks. So for instance, like certain guidelines for, for us, it's, uh, for instance, we are non-profit. So you cannot take like our pin and our material and then like run for office because we are an educational organization. We are not a political organization, even though our mm. ideas are political. It's a little bit confusing. Yeah. So, but they need to adhere to that. And this tightrope between like the structure and the empowerment is something that you always have to, to think about. So for instance, we have our own online platform where everybody has to go through and receives 10 hours of trainings. Then it's a multiple choice. They have to sign like a handbook so that they understand what they cannot, cannot do, uh, how reimbursements work, so they do something for us. So those are the things that we've built, but we try to give them as much empowerment. So for instance, the higher level volunteers, they are interviewing the lower level volunteers mm. and we train them how to do that. But then that's how we are handling like 10,000 applications. Like my, my 86 or whatever seven members I have right now would not be able to handle that. But by empowering them, we not only give them important skill, they have ownership in the process and they are now knowing who they're interviewing and who they're going to work with later on, as you would do in a business. And that translates into sometimes very sophisticated structures. So for instance, some of our high level uh, coordinators have like between 20 to 150 like reports and they have to figure out like how they get that information, how they steal them. Um, but yeah, I've been giving a lot of training and the higher they go, there's like more opportunities for that. But there, there's certain handbooks, certain like legal things that they have to sign, not too complicated. Yeah. Um, but there's also like one place where they can go, where they can find everything and you want to make it easy. So you're, you're giving them the freedom to do things the way that they, they see best, but you're sitting there and saying like, you need to understand our mission, our values, our, you know, what we stand for before we just give you free reign. I, I think that's smart. That's so smart. And then, and then report back because if they were just doing stuff and we don't know about it, like I cannot talk to my donors, my investors about those things. So we have a sophisticated gamification system that we bootstraps where we give like different points and then also like prizes to individuals and there's like a leaderboards so that we can have like some friendly competition going on and like the best person that's in Latin America then is allowed to travel to like one event in Europe or the United States and so that they build like the platform in, the, in that way and not everybody is using it but the majority is using it and we continue to fine-tune it and give like more incentives so that people actually report back and give us the context the pictures and everything that we need in order to then take this and sell us to the donors. That's huge. Plus your, anything that you get from them and that this platform that you have, it's again, strengthening that community. Absolutely. Yes. And they can talk back to them and say like, Hey, look, this is what you've accomplished. And then other people say like, Hey, these are cool people that talk about interesting things and they're relatively normal. So let me, I want to hang out with them and have some fun. And, uh, you know, the community attracts them more and more people. I like that. How does, how does community and, you know, your mission is huge and community has to grow in order for you to continue with the donors and, and it has to keep spreading your message. What are some of the other things that you're doing? You know, you talked to, you hit on a couple, but what are you, some of the other things that you're doing to really grow your community? So there's different lead generation processes. One is, of course, like typical marketing. And we have like the marketing team and that uses Facebook and, and Twitter and TikTok and wherever you would expect Gen Z's to hang out. Uh, not Facebook so much anymore. They just see it as like where all people hang out, where they interact with their grandparents. That's, <laughs> that's really how they see it, right? They see it basically like as, a, as a, some sort of LinkedIn. 
Um, so we, we're putting a lot of stuff online, blog posts, and that's how we're capturing and contact details. And we're capturing contact details at our events, and then we market to them and say like, hey, do you know about this opportunity or that opportunity? That's one thing. Another huge funnel for us is our YouTube channel. It's called Learn Liberty. It has 285,000 subscribers. And so we are tailoring mostly these ideas to Gen Z folks, and then like try to nudge them to take like more in-depth courses or um, get like a, a book, like a free book, but they have to give us their email address and then we continue to market to them. Um, that's, that's all like the, the more centralized marketing efforts. And then you have, of course, the on the ground marketing efforts where we train students in elevator pitches, how to present the organization um, and send them to different events. And they're doing something called tabling, like a pretty table with our banner and like different books. And then they can ask for like contact details and we train them how to do tabling, right? Because there's a huge difference when you have like somebody like sitting behind a table like this, you know, and not engaging with your audience. Right. And be giving them the right tools how to do this and like smile and go to people. It's like, hey, what do you think about this topic? What's like, I don't know, like pepper spray ban on campus and engage with them on a conversation and then have a good, good chat and then hopefully get them involved. And so they're getting really exposure to really the principles that will help them because sales will be at most people's uh, work at some point, like part of their work, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, you have a large team and that's not even talking about all the, you know, students that are out there that are, are promoting and, and spreading the, the, the message. How do you keep a large team like that organized and how do you work with that to, to help scale it and really grow the business? Yeah, it's, it's not always easy because since 2016, we have fully remote, um, like once I became the CEO. Uh, I, I killed the office was one of the first things that I did. It was like, I don't know, 17K in downtown DC. And we just didn't need it. We probably needed it at some yeah. point to signal to the world, like, hey, we mean business. We are big because students for liberty sounds small, but we don't need that anymore. And I was able to hire like probably four or five people from around the world. And so one thing that is good for us is that we have like an organic pipeline because we are basically like a talent development organization that just focuses on the ideas of liberty. And so there's already talent coming our way and people have a passion for it. So we are screening very um, diligently for passion. But then we also create like systems. And one of the, um, we're very data focused. Yes, I'm, I'm German, so I love systems. I, I love uh, structure. And so why not, of course, trying to squash the creativity of the individual because we are trying to empower students. So I want to empower staff as well. And so there's a bunch of different mechanisms we do. Try to get together at least once a person. Wish you could do it more often, but it's too expensive for flying everyone in. Um, but then we have scorecards for every single team that we can look at weekly and make sure that's aligned with our um, seven-year goal. It's aligned with our three-year goal. It's aligned with our mission and vision. And all of that is on a one-pager. And it comes from one specific book, which you've alluded to, like the, the traction, which I would deem to be the most important business book that I've read and I've read by a bunch. What are some of the things from Traction that you would say to, you know, a business owner right now and say, hey, these are the, these are the keys of why you need to read that book? Yeah. So for your audience, anyone that wants to create like a team of at least five people or at some point 50 or 100 or up to 500 should read Gina Wickman's Traction. Because most business books, I mean, maybe you are, experience different gym, but like I'm reading it and like some ideas are nice, but it doesn't really give me a whole lot to go off of. Maybe I have like one idea that I can implement, but this book yeah. gives you like a whole blueprint, how you do everything from hiring, how to create KPIs, 
how to create like alignment with all of these different things. And that's what the book does. And it's, it's not easy to implement. It took us several years, but it was a fantastic process. And now I have only one page where I can show you mission, vision, then um, where we want to be like a seven year statement. And then how all of the, then we have like, I think, I think six or seven KPIs and how they all align with that. And I can present it to the board, to the donors, to staff, and everybody understands how they are a part of this and on what specific metrics they are working on, right? It might be contact generation. It might be just having a lot of events. It might be gamification points, which for us is a proxy for the amount of stuff that students are doing, which yeah. is then the proxy for the learning, the growing, the experiences that students are accumulating. And that took us quite some time to build, but now there's like no uncertainty, right? There's a lot of alignment across the organization. And there's weekly touch bases on this. And our strategic planning is all aligned with that. People say like, okay, I'm working on this because it will help this KPI. And there's like no uncertain language. Um, is it perfect alignment? No, but it's like much, much better than it was before. And uh, this sort of structure has been foundational um, for our growth and heading in the right direction together. Now, did you, when you first started this and, and wanted to implement this, did you start with a very small team? And then branch it out or did you bring everybody in? So what we did is I had my senior leadership team read the book. And then there's like another book. Let me see here. And of course, here it's called Get a Grip, which is basically the practical application of the book. They're just yeah. telling stories, how they, like how a business implemented that. Because it's not always easy to figure all of these different components out. But we had my team read that and organically they said like, this is amazing. We want to do this. Yeah. So I didn't even have to force them to say like, hey, this is what we're going to do. You, you got the book there? Well, right, right beautiful. Yes. Yeah. So I, I'm with you. They're, they're fantastic. <laughs> so they read it. They, they all liked it. And then we said, like, let's implement it. And then we came up with the process. Like, what are some of the things that we need? Which, for instance, was the seven-year statement. And then we had, like, hours of conversations about that. Like, what are the most important KPIs that we can have? And so some businesses are easier. It's the bottom line. However, that's a lagging indicator. Like, what are some of your leading indicators, right? Distinction being lagging indicators, money in the door that comes at the end, but like you have to do like a lot of grinding before you can actually make asks, right? And sell the product. So, um, so we had to think about all of this, this through and then, uh, oh, this is another very important component, which I would attribute like a lot of our growth to. It's good to have like annual plans, right? And you have the KPIs and then you can check weekly on that. But what about like working on the business and not only in the business? They have the so-called rock process. And it goes back to the picture. Like for instance, if you have like some pebbles, you have sand, you have water and you have rocks. You know, if you put like the, the sand in there, the water in there and the pebbles and try to fit in the rocks, it won't fit. But if you put the rocks in first, the other stuff will fit around it. So going with that image, rocks are things that you think will be important to reach our KPIs, but they are mostly like structural, more procedural. And it takes like longer than just one action step. It's a project. So now we're brainstorming on an organization-wide, every individual, and like every year we have like 300, 400 rocks that we go on. And they are really pushing the business forward. And it's on a three-month horizon, which is much easier to control for. And people have to report back to, to their supervisors about that. And that's like another very important tool, how you can create like more bigger projects, because otherwise you will be just called in a day-to-day -day or like calling customers and so forth and forgetting maybe to build like a better system to onboard customers. Yeah. And are you as CEO, are, do you have your own rocks that then flow down or is it like, Hey, these are my biggest projects I'm trying to do. Everybody, everybody has rocks and th there's only one owner for it. 
yes, they might need help from the IT team or for the marketing team, but you are responsible for that work. And the goal is that like 95% of every quarter will be done on time. So I have a walk right now to, to update the supervisor handbook. Um, and then I have like another walk to create like more prospects for our board um, and have like six action steps. And all of them is in the smartphone. So it's not only about like, think about like a better customer system, customer system. Because I can just say, like, okay, I thought about it and actually now I've done it. No, you have to make it like smart. Basically, what I'm saying is I want to have more people on my board. So what I'm saying is I'm reaching out to six, to, to try to identify six prospects and have at least six action steps within the next, you know, um, quarter. And then I'm reporting back to my team about this as anybody else in my team. Yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. Let's talk about, so we've hit on community a little bit. We've hit on, you know, obviously traction and how that's helped to grow your business. For an entrepreneur listening right now, when it comes to, let's just say they, they, they know that they want to grow their business. They know that getting in front of their community is essential, but they don't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. What are a couple steps that you would say, like start with A and, and then work your way to in a way that they can really build their community? The first thing that was is a challenge and say like, what do you need the community for? Right? Um, because I've seen a lot of businesses have the ideas to create community and maybe they just had like a series B and they have like a lot of money and they try to do like campus activism. I've seen this like with businesses that I don't think had a business in doing this. So if you have a good answer to that question, that's great. But you should first ask, is this really the most important thing that you can do with your time right now? Or is it you engaging in the grind, like trying to cold call a bunch of people and trying to sell your product? And I would say for the majority of businesses, you don't necessarily need a community or just organically emerge as, as a side project. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the first step, I would go back to the principles. Um, come up with some sort of profile of like the people that you want to be associated with or that could help you. What are the, some of the criteria? Um, should they be like very nerdy and just like talk 24 seven about like your, your product or should it be like a little bit more open and should be about the ecosystem in general? You know, define that and then figure out how you be able to find those people and come up with, with like a good interview process and give them ownership. So I think those would be like the next steps. And you don't need like a whole lot of people um, to start with. I've told you about my story with European Students for Liberty when, when I was part of the volunteer force. We were six, seven students at the beginning. And we had like no idea what we were doing. We were looking at the, at the map of Europe and saying like, okay, you're going to do German, the German-speaking countries, you're doing the, like, the Spanish, Spanish-speaking countries and maybe like Portugal, France, not going to happen. Uh, but, but actually, with France is like one of the strongest regions now, it's a funny side note. And uh, then we just went out there and did like trial and error, but we had like the ownership of that. And we discussed like, okay, I will be responsible for recruitment. And we were all responsible for a conference. And we did a conference after only like eight months, we got like 220 people there. And we didn't even know there's other people that love our ideas because the ideas that we have, but it's not very well known in the United States or in Europe, if you, yeah. you know, if she want to be blunt about it. And we didn't sleep really, but I had more energy than ever in my life because we were building it. We had like hand painted signs to point people to like the different lecture halls. We invited all the speakers. We got some sponsors in. And the success or the failure was with us. And if you give something like this to somebody else, they will be completely differently motivated as compared to like you telling them like all the things that they got to do. Of course, there's a component of that. Yeah. But you also have to create like a joint vision and 
and invite them in to, to bring like their own spin to it. And if they have like an idea that you're not necessarily agree with, but like give them the chance to, to prove themselves. But of course, employ lean startup thinking and not like have them start a project and they want $20,000 when that makes no sense. Right. Well, and it all ties back to the KPIs and that return as well, right? Absolutely. And that's how I treat it with my staff as well. Ideas are abundant. The ability to execute is not. And so as a good steward of the resource organization, you as a CEO, you always need to focus on that. Encourage ideas, create like brainstorming environments for it, but know when you're doing it and why you're doing it and make sure that people employ like lean startup thinking. Like just this morning, we had a conversation about donors and somebody came up with a great idea, like how we can create like this wonderful uh, interactions with that donor. And I said like, yeah, I really appreciate your creativity. However, like this would take like a long time for us to get to that point. I'm looking for like more of an immediate point that I have a conversation with this donor about so that he can feel like more valued and, and excited about what you're doing. And with that, what are the things like when it comes to community and, and you know, you've got your community that's out there um, spreading your mesh message, but what are you doing with your community for the fundraising and the donors? Like, how is that different? And how is it the same? We are using um, our students quite a bit for that uh, because our students are our product, if you will. So it is of pivotal importance to try to facilitate, and we're not as good at that yet, but facilitate interactions between like the, the, some of the, the major donors and the students. Ideally, if you can imagine if maybe your product also changes people's lives and maybe you have like a component of like some sort of social entrepreneurship in there as well. If you could bring somebody that has benefited from your product, maybe even started like a business with that because you've given it to them and they were like a low income area or whatever. And then you set them next to like one of your potential investors. Numbers and stories. You have to pull on the heartstrings and on the mind, but the heartstrings are typically more important. And I think that's the same for nonprofit and for-profit investments. And if you can do that, that's very successful. So what we are doing is uh, we have like a fellowship program and we invited the donor to that fellowship program. We had them sit at different dinners so they could just interact with the students. He got like the best essays of some of those students about topics that he really cared about. He was excited about that. Um, sometimes our donors get like, like a picture with a lot of signatures of the students and just like a thank you note. There's, there's all kinds of different things so that they can feel that they're part of it and that they're changing yeah. people's lives because entrepreneurs in the for, in the for-profit sector have it relatively easy because either your product works or it doesn't. You have like an immediate feedback loop. Now I can ask for big gifts. However, the donor besides like feeling good about giving doesn't get like as much tangible stuff out of it. So it's my job to make it more tangible. And if I can move like a, a donor because they see that now a Venezuelan kid got a job at an American company and she was more than her father, who's like a staunch Marxist, which we actually have examples of that. That is moving and that really shows impact. So yeah, you definitely want to facilitate more of those interactions. I love it. You hit it on, you, you summarized community in, in one sentence there with, you need to get whoever's in your community to feel like they belong. They have to be a part of it. And if they're a part of it, they're going to spread the message for you. They're going to, interact with the community. They're going to be part of it. And that's, if you don't have that, you don't have a community. Well said. Let's talk about for, you know, I'm a, my first company we grew from, we bootstrapped from my basement into uh, a multi seven figure clothing brand. And we did that through grassroots marketing. We did that through getting out and doing things different and not doing your, your 
you know, traditional marketing and advertising and, you know, it was getting in front of our, our customers at events and bringing in our, our community of, you know, professional artists that were coming in and doing at music events and doing, you know, painting walls and graffiti and decorating like really cool stuff that people could take a picture in front of, right? Like it was thinking outside the box and it didn't cost a lot of money. We didn't have a lot of money, right? Like we're, we're a startup. So what are some of the things that you've seen like on that grouse, grassroots level that you can help the remote start nation to think about and, and maybe start to do for their business that really takes it from, you know, something small and, and can catch into something big? I mean, if I had like the really full algorithm, I would love to share that, but I don't think I do. Um, but I, I was just, and maybe you have seen this, Jim, um, there's like some really off the wall stuff that's really random, especially if your customers are younger. I don't know if you've seen this, but this, I'm not a TikTok, but I've seen it. It was like this one TikTok about like a body shop and like the person pretended like, Hey, uh, I just got this job, but like, uh, I have no idea what I'm doing. So please load this up. And it was like this random, baby, quirky music. And then it was like a cat that was like dancing. And it was completely freaking stupid. <laughs> but it got millions of retreats. Like this body shop in the middle of nowhere, some like a state that you would probably like never spend time in. Like they have like millions of followers. There's like a now through it. And like nobody could see this coming, but like this is really quirky. So taking risks, I think, could be a little bit of an approach. I know it's like somewhere of a cop out, but. I'm only talking to you right now because I took risks and I've studied things that other people would not study. And um, I, I made a career of something that was risky for me, whereby it could have been like in academia, which would have been more comfortable, but less impactful. So taking risks and trying different things and, and doing what you have done, like trying different things. And I'm sure that you had like plenty of stuff that didn't work. Right? Oh yeah. And it was, and it's fine, you know, um, be okay with that failure. Um, but Jake, think about Again, the lean startup method, how can you do something quick, maybe only with like 50, 100 bucks and see what comes about. Like, and for our students, for instance, um, they sometimes, uh, they did like a, a zombie crawl dressed up as like the founding fathers, but then they did like a pop zombie crawl because government has become so big that they had like, and that was like their message. And it was a very creative, they wanted to do it, it was quirky. And they got like an evening, not only on the campus newspaper, but also even like on the state level, some newspaper articles written about that. Some people were interested in free speech and art. So they had like rappers doing some, some bits about free speech and some artists came up and spoke to an entirely different audience. And all of that can happen within the same organization because we allow them to take charge of it. So, um, and I, I would never be able to come up with these things, right? So you have right. to call the people that are on the ground and that actually want to do the work. I love that. I absolutely love that. It, and it, everybody's level of creativity is different. And I think... You know, it comes back to even like where I was. It's like you have to understand your your message, your mission, and you have to understand who your customer is. And you know, for you, your customer could be a lot of different people, different walks of life. And that's where the two examples you just gave completely different, but both got the same message across. And and, and I love that as well. And if you, if you ever trying to raise money, you will have the same. Same idea. Like sometimes I have donors who uh, are in the, let me put it mildly, the adult film industry. And I have a very different conversation than I meet like a very evangelical Christian the next day. However, they will find both some really interesting aspects of our work. And they share like a lot of ideas, even though they would not personally probably not hang out with one another. Right. But uh, this, this, this makes it exciting. But uh, sometimes I'm, I'm joking, um, even though I'm running Students Liberty, I'm only hanging out with old people. 
like my main customers personally is because fundraising and our budget is 5.9 million. Um, I have to focus on, on the older individuals that are more in the stage of life where they can give money. And that's, that's a very different pitch than, than talking to the students. Like if I had to do like on-campus recruitment, they would like laugh at me because I'm way too old. They wouldn't know why I'm here. And you know, <laughs> I would fail at that. So I'm empowering staff that is like much closer to it and actually wants to hang out on TikTok, you know, which I would dread probably. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Well, unfortunately, Wolf, the, the, we're coming to an end here, but, uh, I have one, one more question for you, but the, before we get to that. Where can the Remote Start Nation find you? Well, thanks again so much for having me, Jim. It has been a pleasure. Um, yeah, find me on Twitter and on LinkedIn. So both are just with my name, and that's not easy. So it's Wolf, like the animal, and then Von La, V-O-N-L-A-E-R. So if you typed it in on Twitter, you can find me there, and I'm active. And also on LinkedIn and otherwise studentsforliberty.org. Excellent. What's the one biggest takeaway you can leave with the Remote Start Nation today? Either that we talked about, that you want to hit home, or something that we didn't talk about that you want to make sure that we know? Be very deliberate about governance, especially when you're growing and you create like a board of advisors or like a board of directors, be very deliberate about that and, and learn from more experienced entrepreneurs and, and people that have been in those stages. I think that's, that's very crucial. And um, especially if you can take risks, fail quickly and um, do more of that. And besides that, of course, listen to this podcast. Hey, it's been fun. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I learned a lot from you and uh, Remote Start Nation. I hope you did as well. Hope you learned as much as I did and uh, can put some of what Dr. Wolf shared with us to work for you. So thank you all for joining me on this journey. And remember, leave a comment, subscribe, share this episode with your community who you think could learn from what you heard here today. And until next time, go start something. Start it today and go build a lifestyle you desire by taking action. We've come to the end of another episode. I want to thank you for allowing me to share my passion of bringing people together through business and branding in hopes to connect you with your community. I'd also like to thank our sponsor, Woodward Movement, the leader in brand identity, branded merchandise, and brand delivery. Check out our remotestartpodcast.com for more episodes and our social channels to join the conversation, access show notes, and discover our fantastic free resources to help you build a strong community for your business. I'm Jim Doyon. Thank you for connecting.